Today's reading is from Luke 9, 51-56. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Ron. I'm Denise Douglas. I am one of the pastors here at New Hope. And as part of my job here, I work with teams planning to go on serve trips. A serve trip is where we take a few people from New Hope to visit uh, one of uh, the locations of our eight global partners. We go there to encourage, to strengthen, and to serve whatever the need may be in that community. Some of you know that uh, we just traveled last fall to Kenya to Open Arms, a partner there. This summer, we'll be going to Mexico to welcome home. That's going to be a great trip. We, we're looking for like 15 people to go with us. This is just shameless plug as I intro my sermon. We still need a few more people, so join us. We'd love to have you come along. But before a New Hope Serve trip, we offer what we call an interest meeting, where people can just come and kind of check it out find out what uh, the travel dates are, what the trip will involve, what we want to accomplish while we're there. When we're in Mexico, we're building a house for a mom and three kids, which will be an awesome thing to get to be a part of. And uh, we also go over what we will need to do to get ready to go on that trip, such as uh, fundraising, immunizations, make sure your passport's all in order, those kind of things. Then people leave that interest meeting and they go home, they may talk to a significant other, perhaps their place of employment, in order to make a firm decision to go. Because you don't buy a plane ticket and you sure don't get any immunizations or arrange time off work until you've made the decision, yep, I'm going on that trip. Well, this morning's passage that you just heard Ron read records Jesus making a firm decision to go on a journey, the journey toward Jerusalem, the journey which in reality was his road to the cross. Last week, we wrapped up our series in the book of Acts entitled The Church on Mission. And the next three Sundays, today and then Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to look at Jesus on mission. Because the church today, we wouldn't be on mission, would we? We wouldn't have a road to follow if Jesus had not first determined to take his journey and actually did it. At this point in the journey, Jesus knew his purpose for coming to the earth. By age 12, we recognize in Scripture that he knew something of his identity, something of his destiny, it's that moment, remember, when he freaked out Mary and Joseph by staying behind in Jerusalem, and they think he's with them in the caravan, traveling back home, and they rush back, and, and they're looking everywhere, and where do they find Jesus? He's in the temple, listening to the rabbis, asking questions, astounding people 
with his understanding and his wisdom. So 12-year-old Jesus said to his parents, and what I can only imagine was a bit of a bewildered tone, well, why did you have to look for me? Didn't you know where I would be? I would be in my father's house. I don't know. I think for most of us as teenagers, we always kind of think we know it all. Um, Imagine having one that literally knows it all. (laughs) That'd have its challenges here and there, don't you think? Well, that story is in Luke 2. By Luke 9, where we're at today, Jesus is well into adulthood. He has been baptized. He has faced the wilderness. He has endured the temptations of the enemy. He has spoken to large crowds in parable after parable. He has fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. He has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He has stirred up controversy with his miracles and his words. Jesus, at this point, knows his purpose and he knows his destiny. Jesus um, is headed to Jerusalem. The decision has been made. Our passage this morning says he resolutely sets out. Other translations say he determined, he made up his mind, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. The original Greek word is terizio, and it means to set firmly. Today, we might say Jesus put a stake in the ground. This moment, I'm headed in this direction. He knows his destiny. Sounds a little bit like Star Wars, doesn't it? (laughs) Anakin was told that his destiny was to bring balance to the force and that Padme's destiny was to give birth to Luke and Leia so that they might fulfill their destinies. Jesus knew his destiny. And let me in, let you in on a little secret. Excuse me, I'm going to cough for a moment. <coughs> Thanks, Austin. It's not that the Bible sounds like Star Wars. It's that every great story like, like uh, Star Wars or other great sagas like Lord of the Rings or even Harry Potter, they sound like the beautiful and good story of God with humanity. It's where every good story in the last 2,000 years has gotten its foundation because Jesus was born with a destiny. And he came to, excuse me, he came to save the lost to save a broken world of violent and oppressed and abused humanity. It wouldn't be easy, not on any level. But Hebrews 12 so beautifully tells us that Jesus would endure the cross for the joy set before him. In other words, it was a journey of love. Luke 9 is this moment that we read this morning when the gospel road pivots to the cross. And Jesus no sooner makes this firm decision, makes it known to his companions that that's where he's headed, than he hits a challenge, a deterrent, a rejection. <clears throat> In many ways, it would become the deterrence along the journey that would define the road to the cross. So we're going to look at a few of these. Our passage this morning really looks at the rejection piece that Jesus faces immediately that he's made this decision. 
Jesus sent some messengers on ahead of he and the disciples to a Samaritan village. And he says, would you go there and ask them to prepare a place for my arrival? Oh, but the Samaritan village found out where Jesus was headed. He was going to Jerusalem. And they said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. You are not welcome in our village. Not only because he was Jesus, because he was headed to a place of people that despised them. They had great animosity between each other. The Samaritans were a group, a hated group at this juncture in history with the Jews. There was great animosity both ways. It flowed uh, between them all the time. The, The Samaritans were seen as compromisers of the faith during and after the exile, which if you step back and kind of look at the whole picture, it's a little bit ironic because the Jews were all in exile because they had all compromised the faith. But they picked out certain things about the way that the Samaritans compromised that they did not agree with. Samaritans were seen as a people of mixed race and mixed religion, and those were big no-nos in the Old Testament. So they were shunned and they were shamed. And the Samaritans, hey, you know, can you blame them? Didn't appreciate it. Didn't appreciate being treated, and so they gave often as good as they got. It was not pretty. They neither did they see the temple in Jerusalem as the big deal that, the, that their brothers and sisters in the faith saw it as a big deal. In fact, they worshiped in a different temple on a different mountain. So what we see culminating right here is the common trifecta of so much conflict throughout history, race, religion, and politics. Understand that the disciples have a cultural predisposition to hate the Samaritans. So the quick and harsh judgment we see in this passage has a history. And I would challenge all of us to recognize that anytime we react to someone or a certain situation with venom, there's a history. There's more to the story. And we see it all the time today, don't we? between religions, ethnicities, and races. And James and John, whom Jesus appropriately names sons of thunder, they think from this particular incident today, uh, James and John jumped at the opportunity today, this day, to give these Samaritans just what they deserved. And they turned to Jesus and they said, Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven and burn them to the ground? Whoa, wow, talk about your cancel culture. You say what I don't like, I'm going to burn you to the ground. These nice disciples, right? These nice disciples, these followers of Jesus, and they turn brutal in a heartbeat. We might want to think what, you know, kind of, do we see that today? The first thing that popped into my mind, and I know it's just a lot of it's because it's before us all the time, but the thing that popped in my mind today was, you know, it's kind of like a black man running through a really wealthy neighborhood and five nice people call the police. We all have cultural history to deal with. And verse 55 
Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them and says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, a rebuke is a very strong correction. It's a warning. It's a, hey, guys, totally off base here. Not going to be calling down fire from heaven to burn up the village. Some translations of verse 55 include, after the rebuke, Jesus saying to James and John, you do not see what your hearts are like. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And T. Wright says, this journey of Jesus is toward Jerusalem is not a victory march, but a journey of love. Jesus, the one rejected in this moment, simply, quietly, without drama, turns and moves on. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, and rejection is not going to take him off course. This deterrent helps define the journey. He would not be smiting people along the way, killing and maiming and taking prisoners. That would not define his journey. Do you ever wonder where, okay, wow, those, that, boy, those disciples had blind spots. I wonder where mine are. I wonder where Jesus would look at me and say, you do not see what your hearts are like. I'm sure, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does with me. And I want to listen. I want to be in tune. I want to let Jesus call that out in me. We have prejudice, all of us. We struggle with disgust and anger toward those we actually know very little about. No matter how enlightened we consider ourselves to be, most of us, okay, maybe there's a few who never struggle with this, but most of us are quicker to judge, quicker to offense due to race, political alliance, religion, sexual orientation, than Jesus is. Doesn't mean that he agrees with everybody he encounters. He means he doesn't go around calling down fire from heaven to burn them up. The disciples were still living by an Old Testament code. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hate me, I'm going to hate you. You hate my people, I'm going to hate you back. We probably won't pray for people or a people group to have them burned up. I'm just kind of thinking that, right? This morning, I think I can look around this building. I don't think one of us is going to ask God to burn up a people group. But I think we have to wrestle with the fact that violence can be perpetuated without drawing a sword or calling down fire. We can make sure a people group doesn't move into our neighborhood, attend our churches, get the good jobs or the prime educational opportunities. We can scorch people in so many ways, except Jesus didn't. He didn't in Samaria, and when he reached Jerusalem, where many expected him to physically overthrow the government, he didn't. He turned the world upside down instead in a completely different way. He turned faith upside down by accepting the ultimate rejection, 
by accepting violence within himself and within his body on the cross, that he might end violence as any sort of way or method for his followers. Our mission here at New Hope, we say, is to follow Jesus and share his love. That's not going on some kind of religious victory lap. That is meeting deterrent after deterrent after deterrent the way Jesus did. So we have to look at the life of Jesus and see, okay, when he faced rejection, this is how he handled it. Maybe there's a place in your life where you just need to calmly let it go and move on without the drama, without the, the hoopla, and move on. So this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to also look at the fact that rejection was not the only deterrent Jesus would face on the road to the cross. Well, look, that was a big part of this, the short passage we read this morning. But we'll look briefly at other things that Jesus walked through because scholars call whole, the whole book, Luke 9, a pivotal moment in the gospel story. Jesus has been focused on ministry. He's been focused on people. He's been pouring out his life in so many ways. But going forward, he's going to have to make sure that those people that he's been so connected with are not the same people who get him off track of where he's headed. Some other deterrents that he would face, and I think we all face, are friends. The disciples themselves were deterrents at times. When Jesus was trying to prepare them for what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, they wanted none of it. Peter even took him aside, the scriptures say, to correct him. Yeah, I think that's funny. I still imagine that up in heaven every once in a while, Jesus pokes him in the ribs, Peter, and says, hey, remember that time you wanted to correct me about my mission? Peter listened to Jesus describe what was going to happen, that he was going to suffer terrible things and be rejected by the elders, crucified, and then rise from the dead. And so Peter took Jesus' society and he said, you got to stop saying those things. And the scriptures has Jesus, he pauses And he turns and he looks at the disciples. I don't know what was going on in his mind at that moment. Maybe he was thinking, hey, should I be listening to Peter? Is Peter right? And he listens to what Peter says. He turns, he looks at the disciples. But then he turns back to Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Get away from me, for you are only seen through human perspective and not through the eyes of God. You see, what the problem was is that Peter had a preset belief of how the Messiah would act, how everything was going to go down, how it was all going to play out when the Messiah finally arrived on the scene. And he believes with all of his heart that the Messiah has arrived on the scene. The Messiah would fight against Rome and win. He would release and restore Israel. He would release them from oppression and they would reign with the Messiah on the earth forever. And Peter cannot reconcile that core belief of all of this history of his people. That's what they've believed. He cannot reconcile it with what Jesus is saying. 
The sobering thing is that Peter thinks he knows what the Messiah will do and what the kingdom is going to be like from a critical study of God's word. Ah, That makes me nervous. If anything should keep us humble today, it is this mistake here that we read about, right? One of the things that I have long appreciated about Pastor John is when he verbalizes a conviction— You know that he has studied it well. He's studied the scripture. He's read beyond that uh, multiple books and sources. And when it's a a topic that he cares deeply about, he talks it through. And then he always says at the end, and I could be wrong. What? I thought the first time I heard him say, what? I don't know that I've ever heard a senior pastor, lead pastor say with conviction, all these things, and then say, and I could be wrong. What I've come to see and believe and so deeply appreciate about that is that it's not being wishy-washy. It's staying open to the Spirit's correction at all times. Not placing ourselves as the final authority or our church or our denomination or our whatever at the authority, but staying under God's authority and ear to the Spirit at all times. Because to know the Bible well is to know humanity makes mistakes. Another deterrent that Jesus faced was his own family. Some of his sibs thought he was losing his mind. They came one day and had Mama Mary with them. And my my guess as a mom of sons, she let fear at times overcome her, thinking what could happen to her boy, her grown-up boy, They're always our boys because the powerful people were getting more and more upset with Jesus and they wanted to take Jesus home. And Jesus did not go. He stayed on the road to Jerusalem. Leaders, we've probably talked a lot in the church about how the powerful synagogue leaders tried everything they could to deter Jesus, to shut him up, to discredit him, to discredit his teachings and his miracles and yet he pressed on. So there's all these deterrents floating about, and there's probably more than I'm mentioning this morning. I'll mention one last deterrent, and that's inner turmoil. Deterrents come not just from without. They often come from within, things that we have to wrestle through. We will see as we move through Holy Week toward Easter that Jesus had some inner struggles We see him begin to wrestle with the longings and his own desires that this could play out in some other way as he gets closer to the cross. His deterrence came in all directions. Rejection, family, friends, powerful leaders, and then his own inner wrestling. As we like to ask around here, so what? What does all of this about Jesus' life and Jesus' journey to the cross, what does it have to do with me in 2023 and my faith journey? We all face decisions. We all face stake-in-the-ground moments where we have to make some decisions about who Jesus Christ is. That's our first decision point. To take that first step of trust, to even trust that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And if that is true, what am I going to do about it? 
It's kind of like an interest trip. You come and you find out what this is all about, and then you have to decide, am I going to follow this path or am I not? Am I going to believe who Jesus is? For those of us who have made that decision that we absolutely believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, we have started on a journey to follow Jesus. And along that journey, we're going to have different calls on our life. We're going to hear some specific things that are just specific to our own personal lives. They might be professionally. Uh, yeah, a call on our lives professionally or financially or relationally. We're going to have a call where we know that Jesus wants something from us, and they will be defining moments in our lives. Will we keep on the path? Will we follow Jesus, or are we going to veer off? Because it doesn't quite feel as good as it did when we first made that decision. When I was in high school, I recommitted my life to Christ. I had stepped away. I was pretty ticked with God for a while. I had severe scoliosis and when I realized that there was just nothing better than God, I came back, recommitted my life, and my sophomore year began to sense a call on my life toward pastoral ministry. So after a year of uh, really quietly praying and then seeking counsel and guidance and then an affirmation from my church body, I made that firm decision, that's my path. I knew it. So I went off to Bible college in Houston, Texas, and began to study for the ministry. And it was so cool. I thought my freshman year, I got this crush on this older student. I was crazy about him. And I thought, how cool is this? We started dating and I thought, wow, God's already brought someone in my life to partner with and do this. And a few months into the relationship, he, he said to me, and not arrogantly, I still like this guy, not arrogantly, but just raw and truthfully. He said, if, if you're serious about going down this path to be a pastor, I can't continue the relationship. It was a defining moment in my journey, and we all have those kind of defining moments. We all have things that come along that could deter us from what we know God would have us do in our lives. And it's almost always those deterrents that define our journey. So what can we learn from the life of Jesus about how he dealt with his deterrence that we might know how we can deal with our own deterrence? Well, first step is that Jesus prepared. He prepared continually. He was a student of the word, he knew it inside and out. He knew it. Remember, right at the beginning, he's baptized. He's out in the desert, in the wilderness. And at the end of that time, the enemy comes along and begins tempting, tempting, tempting. And every time, Jesus had a scripture right back to him. And he knew his stuff. He knew. He had prepared for that encounter. He created space in his life, times of prayer and fasting, kind of what Lent is all about. Jesus did it too. He created space to walk lockstep with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He took Sabbath, and no one was in more demand than Jesus. But he too took Sabbath to rest, to be with friends, to eat good food, and to say, 
It's all God's anyway. Another way that Jesus prepared for deterrence and dealt with deterrence was obedience. Jesus lived an obedient life to the values and the precepts of the kingdom. He was authentic and he was congruent. What he taught, what he believed, is what he lived. And the first step on our journey is to decide, is Jesus who we're going to follow? As we accept Jesus, he is a savior. That means he, we accept that he's the one who forgives us of our sins, that he restores us to life with God. But to follow Jesus is to follow him as Lord and his authority. Two concepts we don't talk about comfortably anymore. Maybe I need, maybe we need to find better words, or maybe we have, maybe we talk about them more often than I think, and we just have different lingo. But I think we balk more at those terms today. We're not sure we're supposed to have somebody be an authority in our lives. And maybe that's because a lot of us grew up with obedience being kind of a bad word. You gotta obey, I say this, you do it or else. And you know, who's not gonna balk at that? We, it, it's not logic, we don't follow it. We have to have the explanation that when God says or Jesus says, this is the way, walk in it. It's for the purpose of giving life to us. It's always the choice of life or death. And he always says again and again, choose life, choose life, choose life. He's never going to instruct us in anything that's going to damage us or bring us less than. He always wants more for us. We will discover, as Jesus did, that with each act of obedience, that God is trustworthy, that he wants the best for our lives. But obedience will cost us something too. And anybody who tells you differently is lying. Anybody who paints a picture that if you just follow Jesus, life's going to be great, you're going to get what you want, you're going to be wealthy, all is going to be good. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but they're not reading the story of Jesus, okay? Their story doesn't end up on a cross, and our story does. I think Mike talked a couple of weeks ago about what it means to carry our cross. There's always a cross involved, and on the other side is the greatest joy. But we have to do it the way Jesus has called us to do it. Following, uh, following through with obedience, whether it's little or big, always builds spiritual muscles. And why it's important that we build spiritual muscle in the little things is because it prepares us for the big things. Jesus wasn't born and went to the cross the next year, right? Jesus had 33 years of preparation to get there. Okay, so here's some good news. That's, that's maybe a little harder to think through and go, oh, yeah, you're right, I forget. Yeah, life isn't always perfect. Okay, well, here's some good news. Not only did Jesus prepare himself and, in, and was enabled that way to, to face deterrence, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit worked right alongside him, did their share in preparing him for this road as well. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as this lonely, solitary figure on the road to the cross. I want to tell you, he was not alone 
on his journey. He was not left alone to figure all this out. God, think of, that, think of through the journey, the little bits that we even know of his life. Jesus, more than, or God more than once, the Father, spoke affirmation over Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There were affirmations from God the Father. God um, sent angels in critical moments of Jesus' life to strengthen him and to prepare him. Now, the big one is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present from conception on. He hovered around Jesus' life all the time. Go back sometime and look for the Spirit in the Christmas story. The Spirit is hovering with Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist and Elizabeth and Zechariah, Simeon and Anna. The Spirit is everywhere in Jesus' life. The Spirit's present at baptism leads Jesus into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed, conquered uh, the temptations that were presented by the enemy. And Luke 4.14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee to ministry. So Jesus was not alone on his journey. And my friend, neither are you. Romans 8 tells us we have the same spirit empowering our lives as Jesus did. One other thing that God provided for Jesus along the way were companions. I loved that song we sang this morning. I don't know if we've sung it before or not. Uh, running with the saints. I'm running with the saints. Wow, that's awesome. God puts companions in our lives. Let's look at what he did for Jesus. Luke 9, the same chapter we're in this morning, just a little bit before this is the transfiguration. God sent two old friends to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. I love it. Do you ever wonder why those two out of all the people that God could have sent, you know, the father could have sent, why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses knew a thing or two about being on a journey. Yeah, a very long journey. And Moses knew about what it was to be with a stubborn people who kept trying to take you off the path when all you were trying to do was get them to the promised land. (laughs) Elijah was a prophet who knew all about mountaintop experiences followed by the worst moments of life. He watched as God took care of 400 false prophets of Baal. And then that mountaintop experience, so incredible, so powerful, Then Queen Jezebel shakes her fists and threatens, and he is out of there. He's running. He knew what it was to be exhausted, lonely, and frightened. God sent the perfect companions. I love that. God sent to Jesus the perfect companions, and I believe God has placed in your life the perfect companions for your journey. There's a whole room full of them right here. We have companions for the journey. And I'm going to say, if Jesus needed companions who would understand him and strengthen him, hello, (laughs) we do too. The enemy loves self-sufficient Christians. Stiff upper lip, I'm pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, thank you very much, gutting it out alone, because then we become easy pickings. You think you can do it on your own? Awesome. We can't. Seek out friends, 
pastors, counselors. We need companions. Some of you may have committed to something for Lent, and you can't do it on your own. That's what you found out. And that's a very important thing to find out. I'm glad you did. As we, later this week, wrap up the observation of Lent and head into Holy Week, uh, let's think about some things. At the beginning of Lent, almost 40 days ago now, we made some decisions and we made some commitments. Now, you don't need to answer this out loud. Just kind of think about it internally. How did it go for you this year? I hope Lent was meaningful for you. I hope that you found some of the practices that we and some of the um, tools that we provided here, I hope they were hopeful, helpful and hopeful for you, that you were able to carve and create more space in your life for more of God. Maybe you made some decisions. Maybe you had some defining moments in your faith journey because of your practices over the last 40 days. But maybe you're here this morning and you feel a bit more like Peter. Peter made a commitment that he would never deny Jesus, and then he did. He made a commitment, yeah, over and over. I won't, I'm not going to deny you, ever. His intention was to follow Jesus all the way to victory. That was his intention, his decision, his statement. And then life threw this major curveball at him. He didn't see coming. You see, he was going to fight. He pulled out that sword in the garden, and he was going to fight with Jesus to victory. But what he didn't see coming is Jesus say, put it away. That is not my kingdom. And Peter didn't know how to fight yet. He did not know how to do a spiritual battle, so he ran. And maybe that's what happened to you with the last 40 days. You made this commitment, and life threw something at you that you could not see coming, and you are more confused than when you started we know the end of the story. We know what Jesus did with Peter. He met him with grace, didn't he? Always. And wherever you're at today, Jesus meets you with grace. Because the work of salvation is not on us. It's on Jesus, and he says, come. He knows our every weakness, and he knows, as Lent reminds all of us, that we're made of dust. God doesn't need reminded, we need reminded. And sometimes it's our failures that remind us of that. And Jesus meets us with grace. This morning, we want to invite you back to where we began Lent, with the Lent boards that are over on the sides of the sanctuary walls. Just as a way to kind of connect your life to this message this morning, I'm going to ask that you think of one of these three prompts, Okay. Pray about it, look at him. The first one is, have I made the decision to follow Jesus? In just a few minutes, I'm gonna release this. We're gonna go grab a pen that are over there and just put, put one of these three prompts and answer, and then we're gonna invite you to communion. But that's the first one. Have I made the decision to follow Jesus? Maybe you need to walk over to the board this morning and just put yes, exclamation point. 
Or maybe you need to go to the board and just honestly say, nope, I'm not there yet. But maybe you want to seek a companion to talk about it. Second prompt you could choose is what deterrent am I wrestling with in my faith journey that maybe before this morning I didn't even recognize this is a deterrent to get me off of following Jesus. Name one thing on the board. What's your deterrent today in following after Jesus? Three, what, has, what was revealed to me during Lent? I'd love to come read the boards and see what kind of things did making space for God do for you this Lent? What, what was revealed to you about Jesus, about your life, about any one of those things? So the worship team is going to come up and lead us in worship. Take a moment or two as you're considering these. I invite you, I know you're not all going to go, but I encourage you to go to put your body in practice and connect your brain and your body to your faith with one of those prompts. Write something on the board, and then if the servers for communion would go ahead and come forward, we're going to meet you up here at the table of grace, at the table that reminds us every week, Jesus is enough, at the table where Jesus says, my body broken, my blood poured out for you on your behalf always. So come.